I'm Matt Serdahl. Welcome to Mythic Christ, reawakening mythic imagination in earth, the self, and the divine. Mythic Christ podcast offers an experiential bridge between imagination, archetype, and sacred story to re-mystify the divine image within, to summon spiritual renewal and action in these times. This is Mythic Christ, reawakening mythic imagination in earth, the self, and the divine. wood, sounds, smells, the fragrances, feel of light and shadow, damp, cool, and then you hear it, the water of life. babbling and laughing over the smooth stones. Cool, a certain coolness near this creek, bubbling up from the place where the world was born, rising up from under the earth. Can you hear it? Can you hear its dirge-like voice? Sad and laughing, reverberating off stone, muffled by the moss. This song, this story, always been cascading. Can you hear it? Watering the roots of this great tree deep in the heart of the forest. Giving life deep in the rhizomatic soil. These underground mycorrhizal layers, entangled roots, hundreds, thousands of roots, silently drinking beneath your feet. This is the ferment, this sweet fragrance of peaty moss, a pungent decay lifting up into the waft of a cool, damp breeze. All your senses sing this place. All the silent voices of memory, all the gods come here to drink. This is the ferment you grow out of. Can you feel it? You, your body, emerged from this place, from this ferment 
where green worlds are born and decay and die, where vining life sprouts, weaving countless stories together, memory, ritual, song. This entangled web of interstitial consciousness surrounds you. German poet Rainer Maria Rilke writes in his Book of Hours Love Poems to God, But when I lean over the chasm of myself, it seems my God is dark, and like a web a hundred roots silently drinking. This is the ferment I grow out of. More I don't know, because my branches rest in deep silence, stirred only by the wind. In this episode of Green Christ, we will explore an ancient archetype of the divine that takes us out of the mind so that we can return to the body, that is a full return to the mythic experience of incarnation. Hidden in the Christ tradition are accounts of mystical experiences that are physical, fleshly, erotic, and ecstatic. God born, God who grows and decays, decomposing and regrowing deity, a greening Christ emerging from the anarchic wisdom of nature itself. Not just the expanding, transcending, unitive light, but the fecund and fermenting that which breaks down and decays the linear order and structure into its primal energies. Ivy goddesses digesting the shit, spreading and winding tendril-like, attaching and dissolving the mortar and brick of modernity of empire. When we move from the monologue of theology to the mycologue of myth, we discover a whole living root system in primordial ground beneath this temple of stones of priesthood and religious doctrine. Something mycelial is silently drinking in the soil, fruiting up in the form of stories of vegetation, goddesses, and gods across cultures. The Green Christ. We'll explore Jesus as a vegetation god who rivaled and eventually decomposed, absorbing Dionysius and Demeter. The true vine of ecstatic consciousness. Elemental Christ of stone and fire earth and water that Hebrews, ancient Celts, and other earth-based animistic traditions made mystery imminent and intimate to daily life, livelihood, and culture. Jesus, like a shaman in rapport with the spirit world, the animal powers, returned the animal to the God image. Human, animal, vegetal, mineral, green Christ. This other world, this fungal kingdom. In a time of great darkness, Rilke penned these words when the order and structures of an industrial world were unraveling all around. And he said elsewhere in his Book of Hours, Now I see you, wind, woods, water, roaring at the rim of Christendom. Now I see you. Emergent god of dirt and fungus, dark, web-like deity entangled in the ferment of the world itself, forest, woods, 
mushrooming up in bodies of plant and human, that hummus of which we participate, the stuff of earth, human threaded veins of rotting leaves, riffled waters folded into the veined lifelines of human hands and ventricles of hearts, leaves of flesh, each landscape a living flesh, writhing in a microbial ecosystem of buzzing, thrumming prayer, flesh wounded and healed over, vesicles of memory and feeling, feeding, deity broken down into body. Years ago, when I would work with uh, children and youth in a confirmation program, I would ask the kids, what does God look like? What was your earliest image of God? Without fail, it was a human picture, carved, sketched, scratched in crayon circles, round, human-like, sort of like little flowers or mandalas with faces personified. Perhaps the great question today is, Not what does God look like, but what does God smell like? What does deity taste like? Is it furry or feathered or feral, clawed, toothed, hooved? These Puritan and Hellenistic influences have deracinated us from the original context of the gods and goddesses, have taken us out of the body of our own context of land, of earth, of water and stone, taken us out of the body of earth, out of the body of the physical senses, the emotions, instincts, erotic feeling. And now we're called to return, but not return heroically, to return much less like a hero. Late in the winter we return, tired and dying we return. We return to the soil and the roots where God was born. For over 2,000 years, our myths and stories have been uprooted from their ecological context, uprooted from body and the memory of the land and the stories of the people who live there. And strangely, hidden in plain sight are the vegetal vestiges of this older time, this connection between body and myth and vegetation and the land hidden in plain sight and art and architecture and cathedrals and temples are greening and weaving vines and trees, the sap of intoxicating ecstasy pointing to enfleshed divinity. We see this in the Christ tradition, in Buddhism and Hinduism and even Islam. It forms the core of the ancient mystery religions and many indigenous mythologies are also hidden in the symbols themselves. The symbolon at the heart of the Christ tradition is what Josh Shree calls, quote, a regrown sacrifice victim nailed to the world tree whose journey is tied to plants, end quote. For me, this is the green Christ archetype, the green, living, psychoactive Christ manifests in the mythic symbols of the sacramental vine, bread and fermented yeast, seed, the giving and bodily eating of flesh and blood, the grapes crushed underfoot in sacred ceremony, the blood pressed out in libation to be drunk in the intoxicating ecstasy of new consciousness. 
The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that someone took and sowed in her field. Invasive seed sowed in one's own field. Matthew's vision of the kingdom is strangely fungal. It's emergent, anarchic. It overturns, decomposes, ferments. It's not just countercultural or revolutionary against the forces of Roman patriarchy or consumerism or empire in general. It breaks down those ossified systems dominant in the Western worldview. Anything that removes us from the body of Earth dislocates us. Yes, this vision is wild. It's an invasive species that's been reintroduced in the domesticated soils of one's own field. The kingdom of heaven is a yeast that a woman took and mixed in with flour until all of it was leavened. Yeast mixed in with flour. In yeast, there's this hidden active ingredient that causes the dough to rise, a great leavening of dormant unconscious energies perhaps in Israel's deepest identity and mythos. Yeast is a fungus. Sophie Strand calls mushrooms a, quote, reproductive event, unquote. It's an astonishing mystery. These mushrooms and other fungi, 50 million tons of spores released into the sky each day, ballooning into great rain clouds. Fungal intelligence is a non-solitary experience. Sophie Strand says that the fungal kingdom represents the, quote, importance of mutualism, cycling nutrient, the blending of algae to create mineral, munching lichen. They sow forests together, generate soil, and collaborate with a diversity of species, end quote. This fungal and psychoactive power of fermentation lives on the skin of grapes. In the wheat fields, it's this fungal ergot infection of the heads of grain. In bread, in, in our own microbiome, it is multiplicitous and borderless. This is my body. The fungal kingdom demonstrates a kinship in the spaces in between, a kingdom of earth and sky. The high gods of monotheism were once sky gods, and before that, originally storm gods. Sophie Strand points out that storm gods are actually spore gods. And so there's this whole feedback loop. The rain that falls down out of a sporulated cloud nurtures those precise mycelial conditions for mushrooms to grow and send their blooms of trillions of spores into the atmosphere, forming more clouds. What if God was not a monologue, but a mycologue, a mythologue, an ongoing multiplicity of conversation just waiting to be overheard? Tragically, many of us have inherited a belief in an abstract sky god, a sky father who never touches the ground, who never gets into the mess of the flesh, the body of earth, an absentee landlord. Strand says, quote, sporulated storm gods come from the ground like us, so they understand our soil-fed, rain-sweetened existence. They bring the wisdom of the underworld and lift it into the sky, only to pour it back into the leaves, the grasses and valleys, soaking back into the dirt from which they originally emerged, end quote. This 
organic interstitial process. An absolute multiplicitous mystery is perhaps what Jesus was referring to when he said, unless a seed of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces a rich harvest. In the old myths, plants and fungi are not just a metaphor for divinity. They are an enfleshment of divinity itself. What I call green Christ is a fungal god, a plurality of spores dwelling within that one loaf of bread. The festival of unleavened bread was a ritual tied to the agricultural cycle. Central to Israel's understanding of purity is a prerequisite for liberation from the monologue of Egyptian power. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, or Erev Pesach, celebrated the evening of the 15th day, Passover, was a perpetual ordinance. In the scriptures, it says, Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day shall be cut off from Israel. And so the subversive parable of this fungal Jesus a woman took and mixed in with flour, this yeast, like the parable of the farmer who is the sower and the weeds. Here we have a connection with the green Christ and the goddess Demeter, or perhaps Asherah, the ancient divine feminine who brings dangerous leaven. The green Christ archetype is not only an image of sporulated fungal consciousness, but it holds the waters of an ancient and wild divine feminine. Clarissa Pinkola Estes, author of Women Who Run With the Wolves, is a Jungian psychoanalyst, and she describes herself as a, quote, contadora, keeper of the old stories, end quote. I think she's speaking to the mythic imagination as this old knowing that is long overdue. And she writes this, quote, The river always called to be visited after dark. The fields needed to be walked in so that they could make their rustle talk. Fires needed to be built in the forest at night. And stories needed to be told outside of the hearing of grown-ups, end quote. No matter how walled in the burnt-out heart of our domesticated selves, a wild seed always arrived on the wind. The wild woman archetype is counterpart to the green man, and it's more than a representation of the deep instinctual nature. She is the goddess of the psychoid from where this phenomenon originates. The wild goddess as an archetype has no name. Should she show her face as Kaliak or Seridwin or Ladloba or others, we understand that her cycles change, her symbolic representations change, but in essence she does not change. Estes says, quote, she is what she is, and she is whole, end quote. To speak of the wild goddess as a phenomenon is to acknowledge her historic suppression, she who dwells in the unapproachable depths of human experience and consciousness. To name her is to speak of the nature of mystery and myth, to awaken the archetypes, to incant and incarnate divine power in the body, to localize divinity in the land itself, and to orient the cultus community, and culture within a living cosmos. Myth weaves God, humanity, and earth together 
and the wild goddess is experienced as a many-eyed intuition gazing out onto the world like the starry night through a thousand eyes, a thousand animal intelligences. The green Christ archetype represents the split-off instinctual animal powers. These animals needed for healing the divine image and repair of the world. For many indigenous peoples, the gods' powers were animals that peopled the other world, the sky people, the sea people. And a shaman is one who lives in two worlds at once. Poet William Everson says this, Christ related to the animal powers that preceded our more sophisticated religious impulses. In the desert on a 40-day vision fast in Mark's Gospel, Jesus was embarked on an extended journey through the visionary realm, the spirit world, where he was with the wild animals, the animal powers, and afterward the spirits attended to him. Spirits, powers, animals, plants. Over time, these wild images were overlaid with domesticated ones, pagan symbols with Christian ones. A healer might become a witch, a goddess, an angel, an initiatory veil might become a handkerchief, a powerful medicine or potion might become ordinary wine, and a living body of barley grain and psychoactive spores might just become a thin wafer tasting of cardboard. The yeast of Green Christ carries dangerous leavening powers, which are the symbol, the mystery at the heart of the Passover, which literally means to cross over, a meaning hidden also in the etymology of the word trance. It's not the thin bread of law and order that tastes like cardboard, but it is the sporulated, full-breaded ecstasy of the green Christ that inaugurates a new kingdom, a new order, precisely by decomposing and fermenting the old dead symbols. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains only a single grain, but if it dies, it grows much fruit. Grain, the lifeblood of ancient peoples on a majority of the planet, corn and grain and seed, part of the turn of the agricultural hinge. Whole communities, civilization was dependent upon grain, a seed fallen into the earth to die, the mystery of regeneration of life, death and rebirth, mycelial resurrection fruiting into body. Mythomystic Josh Shree points out that mythological resurrection has always been vegetal in nature, which is to say that perhaps behind the myths of dying and rising gods, there is the myth of the virtuous cycle of growth, decay, death, and regrowth. The god Dionysus completes this cycle of decay, mulch, dismemberment, put back into the earth to grow and to feed. In a microbial composting of the old order, a pruning of the dead branches through feeling, primarily through embodiment. And the active agent, the toxin, or the medicine, ecstasy. In ecstasy, one feels the God. In ecstasy, one 
unites with the God in the body of physical experience. We are led down to the very depths and terrain of the nervous system of bone and blood, of sap and stem, mycelial veins and dendrites aflame. Ecstasy is a catching of lightning as it goes through you into the ground of all existence. Ecstasy is mycelial in that our sense of autonomous selfhood is melted away into the interstitial body of life itself, and we are suspended somewhere between life and death. Author Brian Murarescu in The Immortality Key says that the Gospel of John is the most Dionysian of the Gospels. Dionysus, the god of ecstasy and wine. Scholarship has identified the clear similarities between the fourth gospel and Euripides' Bacchae, which contributes, they believe, to the unique structure of the original Johannine evangelist. Dionysus' changing of water into wine was an epiphany of the deity. Each year on the day of the Dionysus feast, the temple springs in Andros and Taos flowed with the wine instead of water. In Ellis, on the eve of the great feast, three large empty jars were set in the temple, which were found full of wine the next morning. Euripides mentions the god's miraculous production of wine in the Bacchae on two separate occasions. In the fourth gospel, Jesus not only turns water into wine, he produces the equivalent of over a hundred gallons of wine in the stone jars and of superior vintage. He not only produces a massive amount of vin de Marc, but he does so after the guests are completely drunk. The changing of water into wine was Dionysus' signature miracle. Murarescu notes, quote, in his little-known letter, Ignatius unambiguously refers to the Eucharist as the drug of immortality, pharmacon Athanasius, and, quote, antidote, end quote, or remedy for death, capable of generating life, end quote. This medicine of immortality is the mystery hidden in bread and wine in wild sacrament. The wine of Dionysius points to a much older transcultural archetype ritualized in language that Jesus re-mythologized in his own body, in his own blood and flesh, the active agent the pharmacon of the Eucharist, the sacrament of his own body and blood. Dennis MacDonald, author of the Dionysian Gospel, says, quote, A clever Greek would see this symbol pointing not to Dionysius, but to Demeter. The Eleusinian rites included fasting followed by drinking the kukion, a potion of roasted barley groats, mints, and water, perhaps fermented and psychoactive. The rites also included cakes of wheat and barley, Pelinoi, offered to the goddess. Euripides himself associates grains with Demeter and wine to Dionysus. Demeter was the mother donor of grains and barley and food more generally, end quote. These similarities between Jesus and Demeter, in fact, Jesus refers to himself, the one like a human, as the Lord or God of the harvest. Jesus, the bread God, appears in the stories of the feeding of the 5,000 that was significant enough to appear in all four Gospels. The fourth Gospel refers to the five loaves of barley bread. The only one to mention the loaves are made of barley. The author connects this parable with the story of Elisha who multiplied barley loaves to feed 100 soldiers, which is the frame with which the people would have heard this miracle. 
They say, truly this person is the prophet coming into the world. But Jesus himself rejects this interpretation. He is not the promised prophet, says biblical scholar Dennis MacDonald. He is, quote, the barley bread itself, end quote. This one who speaks from fungal consciousness, plant consciousness, from more than human multiplicitous and mycelial consciousness, a mustard seed, it can take over entire crops. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. The bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh, says Jesus in the fourth gospel. Living bread, active yeast, living spores come down from heaven, descending from the sky as rain covering the ground like dew. What is it? Manna, living ephemeral flakes with seed like coriander. The bread that I will give for the life of the world, the sporulated body torn, dismembered and eaten returning to the body of earth, the source of life, my flesh. A much more raw, visceral, and strange teaching is found in chapter 6 of the fourth gospel. Unless you eat the flesh, of the one like a human and drink his blood, you have no life in you. The one who chews my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. This is a radically new soteriology introduced by the Johannine evangelist, distinctive to his gospel. The eating of the flesh and the blood of the God. Dionysian cult imagery the initiate gains immortality. Dionysius, the god of vegetation, was associated with the fertility goddess, his mother, Semele. Dionysius represents the sap of life, the coursing of the blood through the veins, the throbbing excitement and mystery of sex eroticism in the natural world. The god of fecundity is linked to the grapevine ivy to honeys and berry and trees even. And in the fourth gospel, even God is a gardener. I am the true grapevine, Jesus says, and my father is the gardener, the farmer. He prunes every branch in me that does not bear fruit, and he prunes every branch that bears fruit so that it will bear more. I am the true vine. The tree, the vine, the vineyard, deep archetypal images of Israel's myth, re-symbolized in the words and actions of Jesus. But the vine is an archetype much older than Jesus, much older than Dionysus, even older than the Mesopotamian myths out of which the ancient Hebrew emerged. The symbolism of the vine appears in the shamanistic rites of many cultures all over the world. From Australia to Melanesia, it's found in ayahuasca ceremonies of Mesoamerican shamanism. The vine is thought to be a means by which the shaman is transported from earth to heaven and back again. The vine, 
In the Amazonian rainforest, Banisteriopsis copy is a most sacred vine for the Shipibo Conobo people of Peru. This vine is the center of their knowledge. They refer to it as the ladder to the Milky Way or the spirit vine. The vine is the archetypal ladder between worlds. The fourth gospel understood Jesus as this ladder, quote, and you will see the angels of God, the messengers of God, ascending and descending on the one like a human, end quote. Here, this references to the visionary dream experience of ancestor Yaakov, who saw a divine one standing in the heavens above a great staircase reaching up from the earth. Surely the numinous is in this place, and I knew it not. Upon awaking from the dream, Yaakov anointed and raised a stone. Verbs, anointed, raised, and the image of the stone are all etymologically related to the same Hebrew word Mashiach, which in Greek is Christ, anointed. He laid his head, referring to the stone he laid his head on while dreaming to mark this numinous place. The act of anointing and raising the stone are all etymological and archetypal precursors to our understanding of Messiah, of anointed, where we get Christ, the living stone. But that is a whole other Oprah for another podcast. The vine and the world tree are archetypes for the Axis Mundi, or the world navel, and they're found in nearly every pre-religious shamanic tradition across the globe. The archetype of wine resides in the heavenly kingdom. The archetypal vine consists of water, leaves fashioned from the spirits of light, who are like nodes or seeds of light, like stars. The vine is a cosmic tree, and its branches enfolded the heavens, and its clusters of grapes were the stars. And shamans were ones who, through trance and the vehicle of the drum, could journey up and down the world tree in the upper and underworlds through visionary states of trance to reclaim lost souls and converse with the gods. So the mythologem of the vine is related in this way to the shaman's tree, or the tree of Jesse in the mystical Hebrew tradition. The tree of Jesse was pictured as the tree of life growing up from this reclining ancestor, Jesse, while in a dream. And in the very boughs and branches of this vine-like tree grow the entire ancestral lineage of descent, progressive generations of the patriarchs, all the way to the top. And in the uppermost bough, stand the divine pair, Jesus and Mary. There's even this old Renaissance image of Jesus hanging on the flowering world tree of the crucifixion, growing as a vine from the navel of a dreaming Mary. Vine, tree, navel, dream. Abide in me as I abide in you just as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who abide in me and I in them bear much fruit, says Jesus in the Gospel of John chapter 15. 
Abide in me as I abide in you. This pharmacon, this ecstatic medicine of life, which is the antidote to death, is the sap, the lifeblood of the vine itself. And through ecstatic, non-ordinary states and embodiment in ritual or sacrament, a state of abiding love, knowledge, and unity with the deity is attained, a return to the tree of life and knowledge itself. It is this ecstatic and sacramental sense which is envisioned as salvation and green Christ is liberator, taking us across the chasm from detached relation to the world into a state of profound feeling and ecstasy, of deep fullness of life, erotic embodiment and ecstasy living from the source and center in this world, in our lives, with our families, in community, returning culture to its religious origins. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old cloak from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2. Otherwise, the patch pulls away from it. The new from the old, and a worse tear is made, and no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost, and so are the skins. But one puts ancient wine into fresh wineskins. This miracle at Cana, this mythological reenactment of the god Dionysius and his production of the wines of ecstatic experience and consciousness. Everyone serves the good wine first and the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk, but you have kept the good wine, the good wine, until now. The green Christ is the wisdom of emergent systems that overturn the ossified structures of the temple system, blowing out the walls in ecstatic trance, chemically breaking down the structures of patriarchy. And it is potent medicine because it's unpredictable. It can rupture the old wineskins of dominant consciousness. Okay, so this is all great information, but what does it all mean? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> what I'm calling Green Christ is uh, definitely not a defined term by any means. It's more of a field of inquiry, a territory of mystery, actually. Um, you might imagine Green Christ as a placeholder, a, a way marker or a pointer that refers to a whole constellation of archetypes and powers, animate forces that are living and breathing, that arrive in the deep psychic processes in earth and the soul. Green Christ, and again, Christ is not Jesus' last name, but Green Christ is a kind of mycelial consciousness from perhaps which Jesus and others have dwelt. But a mycelial consciousness is very different than ordinary human uh, consciousness or the ego. And this is perhaps why the secret the author of the fourth gospel was hiding in plain sight, because only the initiated could know or experience this kind of consciousness through direct experience. I say in plain sight because the first and second century Greek hearers and readers would have been quite familiar with Euripides and Dionysus Bacchic rites. And what I mean by initiated consciousness uh, is referring to what Jesus himself said. Ancient 
wine requires new wineskins, new consciousness where they will burst. Ecstatic vine consciousness, sporulated bread consciousness, fermenting yeast consciousness, all requirements of this fungal kingdom. Why is this so important? Well, our religious institutions today are dying. The manna that we tried to store up has rotted. Our theologies today are not living anymore. They're decaying, and our God images are decomposing. We live in the late fall on the cusp of winter. We live in an age between myths, as Carl Jung says. And yet seeds are being planted in the field. New stories, new sense of what it means to be human are slowly beginning to fruit up like mushrooming bodies amidst the decay. Mythic Christ is the name the muse whispered to me uh, not long ago. And for me, Mythic Christ represents this entire underground root system of living archetypes and powers of the living and animate world. It represents this deeper mycelial pattern that's not a monologue, that's um, a whole multiplicity of images and experiences and has its own wisdom about it. A kind of freedom, like somehow it refers to a reality that can free us from the need for monologues and colonizing theologies and human-centered worldviews. It returns us fully to the more-than-human world of which we're a part, and we engage that world primarily through our bodies and our imaginations, the territory of myth. Green Christ is more of a conversation, <laughs> a conversation of soil and stone, of root and water, a suspension between dying and rising that we live today that has gone on long before our cultural memory, but now I believe we're being invited to reimagine ourselves. If you like what you heard today, please consider becoming a patron. You can find out more at patreon.com slash mythicchrist. That's patreon, p-a-t-r-e-o-n, dot com slash mythicchrist. This episode references several books, podcasts, and articles. Carl Jung, The Earth Has a Soul, edited by Meredith Sabini. The Historical Jesus, The Life of a Mediterranean Jewish Peasant, by John Dominic Crossan. The Immortality Key, The Secret History of the Religion with No Name, by Brian Murarescu. The Dionysian Gospel, The Fourth Gospel and Euripides, by Dennis MacDonald. In the Wake of the Goddesses, Women, Culture, and the Biblical Transformation of Pagan Myth by Tikva Freimerkenzie. Singing to the Plants, A Guide to Mestizo Shamanism in the Upper Amazon by Stephen Beyer. Josh Shree from the Emerald Podcast in his incredible interview with Sophie Strand entitled Becoming a Ruin, Decomposing and Regrowing the Mythic. I highly recommend checking out this podcast episode. 
poetry from Reiner Maria Rilke in his Book of Hours, Love Poems to God, and of course, the Bible. Special musical credit for this episode goes to Two Hawks in his powerful album, Sends a Voice. Also to Nils Aslek, Velke Apaa, Johan Anders Baer, Essa Kutulainen, Seppo Pakunainen, in their offering the voice of the Sami through their album Winter Games. Hope you enjoyed today's episode, and until next time, may you be open to the presence of mystery, the unfolding of the great dream that has dreamt you, determined to live the one line of poetry that is yours to live. Amen and awen. May it be so. (laughs) 